computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to Intelligent Performance, where we are fanatical about excellence and champions of ambition. And today's guest is Luke Hampshire, the CEO of Airly, who's innovating to create executive travel and entrepreneur business owner travel as seamless and easy as possible in the private aviation space. But what's Luke's story? Well, he's gone from baggage boy um, all the way through to a firefighter to now become a CEO of his own startup, which he has been on this epic journey for the last seven years just in that space. So we're going to dive into what it takes to have a family, what it takes to have run a business, and what it takes to juggle starting a business as a firefighter and some of the lessons you can take from you know, rescuing people from car crashes and fighting fires to actually applying that into a business realm and making one of the leading aviation brands in Southeast Asia. Luke, welcome to Intelligent Performance. Thanks for being here. And where I really want to start this conversation is actually your interpretation of it. You know, you're a dad, you're a business owner, you were in a firefighter, you worked in aviation prior, uh, you've got a really interesting career from my perspective, and also, you know, you're a family man. So what does, how do you think about performance from that regard, Luke? When, when you think about it in your life, what does it kind of mean to you? How do you, how do you approach it? Yeah, look, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, it, it, it's, it's quite an intriguing, uh, you know, combination of words, uh, intelligent performance especially. Um, I mean, everyone or a lot of people relate performance back to sports and, um, you know, performance, increased performance means more wins. I, I kind of see it as performance is just getting the best out of you on a daily basis and it doesn't necessarily have to be results-based. It's um, just knowing that you, you you continue to be a good person, that you, uh, you you have your goals and you're focused on those goals. But I see performance as being able to do a little bit on the outside of that as well. You know, everyone's so focused on the 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 one thing of of achieving success or, or or winning at whatever they're doing. I think it's also being able to do that while also having these outside things, um, you know, or outside elements to it. Um, I think performance is being able to do that, like to include mm. the lateral, like looking a little bit outside the square to whether it's with family, whether it's with outside interests. Um, I think performance it comes down to the individual, like what my performance as opposed to an output. Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting, it's interesting, isn't it? especially when you've got multiple different priorities in your life, mm. Uh, mm. kids being one, work being another, or even passions and stuff like that. So where I'd love to... Um, I see, just want to go back to actually, so you were a firefighter before you were in your current running your business full-time. And I think I speak to a lot of people, Luke and myself included, when you're building businesses and you have another side, or sorry, you have your main gig, but it becomes a side gig effectively. <laughs> yeah. And you juggle that and it's, um, or maybe it's your main time consumption, but it's how you think about it. It's probably like it becomes a side gig. So I just want to understand before we go into early, because I think you've done some amazing things with that business. Um, where what was that like when you were in that? Like when given from what I understand as a firefighter, it's intense, it's extreme. You're seeing pretty gory things probably on a regular basis. Like how did you juggle? How did you think about performance in that environment? Were you doing things really differently to what you were today or how did you navigate that? Um, <clears throat> yeah, look, it's, it's a really good question. An element of performance, especially in that role as a firefighter comes down to the training. So, you know, from a mental, like physically, you know, anyone can drag hose or, um, you know, 
drag a person around if, if you have that physical capacity. It's more mentally how you deal with each call um, and how you move forward from that. Um, yeah, I was, I, was uh, I guess the suburbs with which I was stationed went, you know, upper class are all quite lower car uh, lower class a lot of fires a lot of nasty incidents and um right. you know uh, what was i 24 when i when i uh, when i graduated which is you know you could almost call it call it old you know there's 18 year old kids that sign up as well but um right. yeah you get, you get exposed to some pretty intense situations at a very early age and you know, as I climbed the ranks and became a leading firefighter so I could be in charge of a truck, you know, you'd have three three of you on the truck and, and literally people that have been here for two years um, with you. So performance, you know, from that perspective was just um, the, the, the level of training we got from the mental perspective as well. There's been so much emphasis and, and effort and, and money spent, not just on in the fire brigade. I think they, you know, the police and ambulance do it as well as around, you know, sort of your emotional intelligence, um, having like counsellor psychologists available to you, debriefing every serious incident. I only remember, you know, I could still recall a couple of really bad um, confronting situations, but performance is almost like being able to endure that call, debrief from it, wipe your hands and move on because, you know, the next call is coming or the next incident is coming. So a lot of them I don't remember. Um, so I, th I think it's, you know, and, and while you've got family at home and other things going on on the side, it, it's all around the mentality. I think physically anyone can be a firefighter. It's, that's not hard. Um, mm. it, it's, it's more being able to stay um, mentally fit uh, and, 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 you know, deal with the call as it, as it comes because no call is the same. That was one of the greatest things of my 10 years there is not one call was the same. Um, so many elements and, 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 uh, and external factors and varying factors to it, but it was being able to deal with it at the time, move on and not let it, um, we, we talk about the buckets, like, you know, if every call you're adding, you're adding water to a bucket and it gets to the stage where it overflows. And that's when you see some of the older guys have breakdowns because they've had too many calls and have done nothing about it. So, um, mm. yeah, a lot, a lot of that emphasis and it worked with me too, um, of getting counseling when I needed it, um, speaking up when I needed to, um, as part of the coping process, because it's not easy. Like you're, you're a member of the public and then 17 weeks later, you're on a truck seeing the worst things you know you're seeing people on the worst day of their life um yeah and and for a lot you know a lot of cases the end of their life um it's pretty hairy like it's it's, it's full on but it's it's just being able to you know i think the, that 17 weeks they, t they teach you so much and 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 with such emphasis on the mental side of things too on staying mentally fresh and keeping that bucket empty so to speak um has a lot towards that or, or added a lot towards that so i'm intrigued about that like so I We've been talking a lot with Olympic athletes, um, people in there, yeah, and they talk a lot about a consistent, sorry, um, yeah, consistently improving, right, uh, and, and looking to reflect. So, how 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 were you trained in that space? Just briefly, around like how, how do you you know you go to a a car crash or you go to a fire call out or someone a kid stuck in a railing or whatever whatever it is like? How are yeah. you resetting and? And also being sensitive to that, the fact it is that the la the worst day, as you say, in many many people's lives. How how are you how are you doing that on on like a what ten twelve hour shift something like that? Yeah, so we did two ten hour day shifts and then two fourteen hour night shifts. So um, 
it comes down to the individual, right? As far as the betterment of, of yourself or the improvement of yourself, that comes down to the individual. If you're enthusiastic, um, you know, we, we get taught the skills uh, on what's required, but you have to apply those skills differently uh, at each call. And, you know, you draw a lot of experience from the older guys or, or what we call the senior guys um, at jobs. But again, you know, once you've been in six years, you could be a leading firefighter in charge of a truck, in charge of a call. Um, uh -huh. and, and that's quite a... Um, yeah, that's quite. A, you, you don't notice it at the time because you train so well. But on the on the drive home, you go. You look at it. You look across and you see a, a, another twenty year old and a, another you know younger guy in the job. And you go, they put us in charge of this. It's insane. But they train they train you so well. So you know the ongoing standards and improvement. You know you, you get a nasty call. Um, the, there's so many things that gets done in the background. Like the comm center will flag it. Um, commanders will flag it. Um, as a you know this was a serious call so you'll get followed up by the peer support program you get followed up you know you get back to the station you, you, you sort of say to the comm center we're not available for calls for the next five or ten minutes you sit down talk about it work through it make sure everyone's okay and it's, it's generally not at that time that, that you get the issues it's a build-up and then you know uh, the, there were guys that had the, the nastiest car accidents involving kids and then at a small nose to tail that triggered them you know, so a, a lot of that impact was down the line, but they, there, there's so much done, you know, in the background as follow-up um, and, and constant training that sort of enabled you to, to deal with that call by call, basically. And, and you know, you could you could wipe yourself off, get up, and go again. Mm. And and in terms of actually, like, when you're at a scenario or an incident, probably a better word, like, how did you find the pressure of that? Did you was that easy to deal with? Like, especially when they're like people are looking to you as a, like as the solution as it were like mm -hmm. how do you i guess how i'd be interested to know how did you first find that when you were, when you did start and then how did that kind of change over that kind of six uh, sorry i think you, you were there 10 years is, is that right 10 years yeah yeah just on 10 years so look generally when you when you're fresh out of recruits you're given a mentor um who's someone right. who's been in you know 15 20 years plus um that can teach you really good standards and i guess early days you know people don't care if you're first day out of recruits or if you've been in for 30 years they just look at you and go you fix it like this this is this is you're here to now deal with this problem fix it so generally earlier years you, you spend a lot of time looking at your officer and looking at your mentor as to to you know i've got a basic skill but it's sort of learning how to adapt those that, that comes over time um when you're in charge of a call it's just really peculiar for me personally you, you don't even think of it like you don't even step back and go, whoa, this is full on or, geez, people are expecting me to deal with it. You just do it. Um, again, it, it just comes down to training and and, and, and over the years you, you get exposed to so many different incidents and, and um, see how things are dealt with in, within different ways. Um, yeah, you, you just sort of go into this zone um, of you just deal with it, doing, doing the best you can with what you know and, um, at, at the end of it, if something didn't go to plan or something was a little bit left field or could be done better, you talk about it post. And um, yeah, it's, just, it's really hard to explain because <laughs> I, I reflect and go, geez, I was really given a lot of responsibility. Um, yeah. And yeah, I was in charge of some pretty interesting calls. Um, but at the time, you're just not thinking about it. You're just dealing with it. Yeah. Okay. Wow. It's extraordinary, man. And Tying this to your business now, so I'm mm -hmm. intrigued to know when you were in the in the fire uh, fire brigade for a you know, decent time. When did you start to realise, or when were you start to reflect on, 
your time prior, which I think it was with Rex Airlines and, and running their operational side of things. Like when yeah. were you, was it straight away? You started to go, God, Rex are a nightmare or it could be done so much better. <laughs> like what, what, like when, when did you start to think, oh, maybe there is something in this aviation and, and then where was Airly born? Mm. It's called, they, they call it a bug, right? Aviation is a bug and it bites you and it will continue to drag you back. Um, so, you know, for, for me, I was, yeah, the baggage boy after school at Marimbula Airport uh, up until, you know, from I think I lied about my age to get to get in early but because uh, I was tall, it didn't matter. Um, but basically, yeah, all my mates went to schoolies. I, I started with, you know, full-time um, at Marimbula Airport and then got promoted to Rex Operations. Um, but... but but from there, I basically did officer training with the Air Force, didn't, didn't do too well with it. I was an immature 19-year-old um, and then got a role in air traffic control support for the civilian side of, of, of they called Air Services Australia, just running the simulators, um, which was great. Got my pilot license, matured a little bit. Um, and I applied for air traffic control and the fire brigade at the same time and just said, look, whoever gives me the offer first, I'll take. And so lucky that the fire brigade came, like, came up first with the offer which is so unheard of. You normally don't get through first go. Um, you know, you normally need a couple of attempts at interviews and, and, and some of the testing. But for some reason, I, I, I got it and got the offer extremely quickly, um, oh, 18 months, which is extremely quickly for the fire brigade. Um, <laughs> and, you know, thankfully they did. And then Air Services offered a position as ATC and I said, no, nah, I'll go fire brigade. My, my, my father was a firefighter as well. Um, so I sort of had that family tie to it and, I don't know. I was just done with aviation at that time. Um, and mm. so, so to sort of answer your question, you sort of go, okay, I'm making a clean break, go do the fire brigade. And I think it took two years and I've always loved business. I was running business, you know, website design businesses as, as an 18 year old, um, 19 year old kid. And um, I just love business. And for some reason I got dragged back into aviation and early was born because, you know, um, through, throughout my time in aviation, you'd see private jets and go, how cool is that? I never thought mm -hmm. of it of, Oh, celebrity or wonder who it is. It's sort of, isn't it cool that you can just show up the jet waits for you. It's like having a chauffeur that can fly. Um, it's really cool. <laughs> right. So, and, and you'd sort of, you know, deal, working with the airlines, um, you see all the, the, the disruption, um, and you go, so that's why they do it because they can just go, I need to go here and here and here and, and you'll take me there. And if I'm running late, you'll wait. If I'm early, we'll go. Um, and there's, there's no cancellations or, you know, there's delays, of course, with weather and air traffic control, but, you know, you're not getting let down at the gate. Um, mm. So that always intrigued me. And I think at that stage, Uber had, had sort of launched and Surf Air in California were, were trying to de democratise private aviation because I did know you had to be wealthy. Um, so I guess I said, I like, I like business, um, and I like aviation and private jets. Is there a way that we can democratize that in Australia? Um, mm -hmm. so that's how early started. And yeah, I think I was in the fire brigade for three years when early launched formally there was a, a previous business I'd started with someone else in that similar space. Um, but it didn't work out. So, um, sort of started again on my own and glad I did, um, and just sort of built it up on days off, um, because of the fire brigade, yeah, you do work 48 hours, but you then get four days off, you get a lot of annual leave. So I had a lot of leave and at that stage, no, no kids. So I'd just sit at home and go, what do I do now? <laughs> so it sort of, you know, it gifted me that time to really try and build something else on, on the, um, you know, on the side. And yeah. I guess that kept me mentally fresh too, always having something else going on that's not related yep. to your main job. And was it like, 
easy compared to pulling people out of cars and stuff like that comparatively? Or was it like, how did you, mm. or, or did you find like the uncertainty of business, especially in a startup, right? It's usually in a world which, uh, forgive me, Luke, I'm not sure if that's the case, but in, in terms of, you know, you're appealing to a customer who's not necessarily yourself um, mm. necessarily. And so like, how did you navigate that? How did you find that? It's grossly different, but when you when you're starting something as a side hustle, you've got no fear. You, you don't have to worry about a salary, and I obviously didn't pay myself for a very long time. Um, you just go and do. Um, and uh, yeah, how did it compare? They're just two very different jobs. Um, starting a business was has been probably the toughest thing I've done, and, and continuing to to well to have it last. What is it now? Seven. Uh, and a half years, maybe eight. Um, I can't even remember anymore, but um, it's just all a blur. Uh, but to be honest with you, they're just two very different things. The fire brigade, you you show up at a time, You there was a, a lot of uncertainty in that, not, not from a job security perspective, but what's tonight going to be like? Am I going to be out at a factory fire all night? Am I going to have the worst call of my career? Um, or are we just going to sit around and for 14 hours and do nothing? And, you know, well, Plenty of times like that too, and, and you sit back and go, "This just—I'm too young to be a, a, a vegetable, like just sitting around eating ice cream." So, um, yeah, two very different jobs. But I'd say, for, for, from the mentality side of things, it was tougher to start a business or to build it. It was—it's easy to start. I think it's—it's—it's it's, it's harder to be committed and continue to push it, even when things aren't going well. What do you mean by that? Which part? So, like the when things aren't part. going well. You, yeah, yeah. Like, look, I mean. I just, it becomes your baby. It's your third child. Um, the fire brigade was not my baby. Um, the fire brigade, I, I enjoyed and, and I am grateful for my time. But to be completely honest with you, um, you you're, yeah, it's almost like a reputational thing. Um, you, you're obliged to keep this damn thing alive, even when it, it, it at times said, nah, maybe not. Um, maybe I don't <laughs> need to exist anymore. Uh, maybe you can just do away with me and move on. But um, so it's, it, yeah, I think it, that's probably more on me mentally. You'd probably ask other people and, you know, other, other fireys have, have side hustles as well. And a lot of the older guys were tradies. You know, you're not normally much better to get in the job with the trade than with them without. Um, so, you know, they, they'd build or mow lawns on their days off and stuff like that for the same reason. You just can't sit around for six days. You know, you do two night shifts. You can't sit around for six days and do nothing. So, um, yeah, makes sense. They, they, they might counter and say it's way harder being a fireman for me um yeah it was physically tough you know at, at times but for the most part yeah the, the, just keeping that business alive when when sometimes it said i don't want to be alive anymore and, and you're going you don't have a choice you're my thing and um yeah re reputationally what it means a lot of your social life is gone because you know when people go out i'm working um at either job so yeah, I'd say I'd say the business, especially since switching to full time, um, you know, January last year, uh, yeah, January last year, I think that's what I mean. It's all a blur. Um, it's been way tougher, way tougher than the fire brigade. Brutal time to go full time as well, given COVIDs and the state of the world and the state of travel. Mm. Like, how did that? I just, how did you find that? Yeah, look, you get locked down seven times. You really start to reflect on life and am I happy and is this what I want to do? The fire brigade didn't, you know, it wasn't that that job that made me want to run away. Um, but it was the, the fact of 
we were unhappy, you know, at this stage we had the two kids, one of which was doing homeschooling because of all the lockdowns. Um, we just sort of said this life isn't for us. And I'm, I'm the kind of guy that if I'm really passionate about something, I'm not going to die wondering. Um, I don't want to be on, you know, on my deathbed and go, geez, I wish I had have just done this. I wish I had have done that. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it was an interesting time, but so what? I'll, I'll go stack shelves. If it doesn't work out, I'll go stack shelves. I'll go do something else. I get to, at, at some stage, you've got to take priority for your, for your own health, mental well-being, and and your families as well. And yep, I left a great, well-paying job in in Melbourne, but it was the best decision I've ever made because Airly was just pulling me to the side. Like it was too busy to do both. Um, you know, pandemic, yes, we were pretty quiet, but it was still busy enough for me to not be able to handle both jobs well. It was just, yeah, there was so much going on both sides. So I might, I might come back to that uncertainty piece because I think that is, that's a key thing in terms of both gigs, right? In terms of firefighter business, it's like how do you navigate it? How do you approach it? How do you handle the uh, – sometimes the silence as well, right? Because when you – I was thinking about this recently – um, when you do marketing, when you start a business, you kind of like you lead into silence and there's nothing there mm -hmm. and you get very little feedback and yeah. you're waiting all the time, hopefully, you know, and you look at likes on LinkedIn and you pray for another one, you know, it's, it can be really brutal from that regard in terms of, especially when you kind of evolve the business. So it sounds like from, as a, a distant follower, I would describe myself, Luke, in terms of kind of watched Early's journey and, and different um, different processes and where, how's it evolved and what do you, what is it now? Uh, and how have you kind of got that? Um, so where it was, uh, yeah, is super different to where it is now. Um, you know, we, we were extremely confident in the democratization approach. Um, there, there had to be a better way to do it. And, and Australia's market is far behind the U S and Europe, U S and Europe, obviously totally different world over there. Um, but within Australia, we're extremely concentrated, um, on the East coast, um, we we have extremely wealthy people getting around, and and you know we've got a duopoly of airlines that, that you know have their moments. So um, it started out with just trying to do empty legs. So if the spare capacity heading in one direction, um, off the back of a full paying job, we we, we were listing it and trying to sell it. Um, I, I self taught myself code, um, coded our first app. That was oh, a long a long time ago, six, five or six years ago, um, and just continued to iterate on that. We wanted to try out shared flights, so just book a seat, pull with other people. That didn't work out too well. Um, so I think for, for out of the seven years, probably the first four or five, oh, probably four, four and a half, were how do we do this? Um, we, we know what the vision is, simplicity, uh, accessibility, and, and I, I don't want to say affordable because it is still not affordable to in comparison to the economy, but more cost-effective. Um, so it's it's always been how do we do that? Like that's our that's our vision. It's the uh, the method with which we we can pr produce that and provide that. Um, I think that took a lot of iterations and, and pivots along the way. What early is now is um, I mean it, it's still one of the probably smaller players in comparison. You know, other brokers out there have been around a lot longer. You know, they might just be a country office for a, for a worldwide or global conglomerate. So, you know, it's hard to compete with with, with that. Um, but I think what we did is we took the blue ocean approach. It's like, well, we can go chase the Hollywood A-listers. We can go chase, you know, all, all the famous people, all the rich listers. But why don't we try and make our own market? What kind of, you know, if, if we 
perhaps change the messaging and, and change up how we do private travel, how we do A to B, will we get a different audience? Can we generate our own market? So the brokers can go off and do their thing. We're bringing up this new sort of, this new movement of, 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 of air travel. And it's exactly what's happened. Um, in the middle of the pandemic, we launched a, a program called Access, which is, you know, inspired by NetJets, you know, the, the biggest player, Berkshire Hathaway, you know, when, when they sold all their airline stocks, that was the only aviation play they kept in 08, I think it was. Um, right. it, it basically brings a, a, a serious level of simplicity and um, cost effectiveness, but also predictability. So instead of having to get quotes all the time, it's just, this is your fixed rate. When you're on the plane, this is what you pay per hour. You don't pay for that jet when you're not on it. Whereas in Australia, you pay for that jet whether you're on it or not. Um, so we wanted to, to test that network approach of if we had customers all along the East Coast, can we link up a network, make it efficient and profitable? Um, all the while, the consumers are paying less. You know, they, they feel like they're getting value for money in comparison. So um, we launched Access. It was a very slow start. I think, you know, there were a couple of months at the start where we didn't do any flying at all. It was very, and it was in the midst of lockdowns. You know, we'd, we'd have we'd have customers book flights and then have to cancel because of lockdowns. We'd have some have to, you know, escape to a lockdown and then we'd have to come pick them up at a different city or different airport, um, you know, outside of the metro areas or little lockdown suburbs, et cetera. Um, so it was probably the worst time to launch a, a new product, especially something that didn't <laughs> exist. Um, but you look at it now, um, in the last oh, calendar year 22, we, we flew 600 hours, you know, probably have, uh, 80 cardholders, so they paid their annual fee, and and you know um, our, our number one cardholders flown about 30 to 40 hours himself. Um, the most exciting thing is probably 70 to 80 percent had never flown private before, um, and cool. and a good portion of them that did fly private didn't do it regularly because of the cost. It was cost prohibitive. So, you know, being able to create something from nothing, and and see the impact it's having on people. Um, it's, it's, it's exciting. It, it was such a punt to take back then. But what is early? Early is positioning itself to be the net jets of Southeast Asia. Um, we will be on the light jet side of things. So, you know, the eight seaters and below or big cabin eight seaters and below, we will be the, the net jets of Southeast Asia. We will have our own fleet. We will be synonymous with private aviation in this region. That's, that's the big play. That's the North Star for us. And it has taken a damn long time to even consider it as a possibility. Um, but the performance speaks for itself now. Um, a lot of hard work went in early days and, and today you don't have to push too hard for it to work. So on the actual offering itself, so as I understand, it's a pretty fragmented market, right, in terms of jets. They're owned by somebody, yeah. usually brokered yeah. by somebody else. And then yep. they're booked by obviously somebody else. And I imagine there's probably some intermediaries and some middlemen and middle women mm -hmm. in there as well, for good measure. Um, yeah. How how have you navigated that? And then I'm also too interested to understand, like, how's the aviation industry responded as well, given that often the complexity is where you make margin uh, and it, mm -hmm. it can pay to keep things complex. It can pay, yeah, pay to keep things opaque, right? Um, transparency, as much as it's kind of heralded as a good thing, it can be a complete pain in the ass. But when you, you know, business, there's, there's lots of private businesses for that very reason, rather than going listed. So, yeah, how yeah. How's in, has has industry responded as well? Um, look, I think we've gained a lot of respect from a lot of players, uh, bigger players in the industry. Um, 
yeah, and anyone can be at it for this long, um, but it's the fact that we've had a profound impact and, and we, you know, we've had people sort of start on that four-seat jet as part of the program and they then go charter bigger planes because, you know, in their life they're more successful, they're going further further afield than the East Coast and um, I think we have garnered a lot of respect um, from operators. Uh, brokers, I'm not sure. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty salty and cutthroat business, but because we took that blue ocean theory where we're a niche and we stay in our lane now, um, I think part of my personal maturing has been around not worrying about what everyone else is doing because I was so obsessed with that uh, a couple of years ago. And it just gets to the stage where we know what we're doing and it's working because you look at the the growth in revenue, the growth in, in hours booked and just the, I mean, we, we, I should, I should sort of go back to when I was saying, you know, we're not worried about the rich listers or the famous, but we've got them too, but it's those self-made um, businessmen and women um, who thought it was a, a pipe dream to be flying private um, are now doing it. And I think it's also because we talk, you know, flying private is, isn't trying to be Kim Kardashian and, and extravagant. It's, it's more about convenience and simply like the, the convenience and the time saving and, and reliability um, over, you know, the four seaters, they're beautiful jets, they're, they're you know, newer, um, but they're not the big 14 seat jets that you'll see the, the, the celebs on. Um, we don't do that. We, we, we sell a time machine um, or, you know, we sell access to a time machine. And, you know, it was just proof um, a couple of weeks ago when the storms were in Sydney, we had the four seater also grounded in Sydney because of the lightning. No one could be out on the tarmac. And um, as soon as the, the storm had cleared, our guys were in the jet and, and wheels up. And it was just pandemonium around at the domestic terminal. Um, you know, people were stuck on planes, couldn't deplane, couldn't board planes. Um, the the jet stuff flight behind them was five hours late coming into the Gold Coast. So um, that's why we do it. We don't do it for the for the flashiness. It's a great experience. You get looked after, but the reality is we're, we're, we sell access to time machines. And I think once we realised that and we were able to stay no, we could, you know, we've stayed to our lane so not too worried about what the industry thinks about us we know what our numbers show and um i think operators have, have we've gained a lot of respect from operators um but from a broker perspective again couldn't care less but if we had um if we have garnered their respect that's great and if not you know because some see it as us cutting their lunch or stealing people away from them which i don't think is, is the case but as i said it's a, it's a very acidic and cutthroat and salty and immature industry sometimes so we try not to get too involved in that uh, it sounds like you yeah like you said you, you you've gone from a, a totally different value prop you know the mm -hmm. people who are trying to sh show off almost it's not that's not necessarily for you and that's interesting because i kind of came into this thinking oh it's all kind of just superficial you know like i fly private because there's a lot of that right on, you know see that on linkedin and, and elsewhere you, on, you, on social but I'd say 90% of those people are catching empty legs, which are discounted one ways um, and are milking the hell out of it and recycling. No, I'm serious. Um, we'd, we'd get a lot of um, influencers, especially ask for free flights and free flights in exchange for content. Um, I mean, the, the Grant Cardone, he, he flashes his private jet all the time. He can afford it, right? Um, so don't get me wrong. There are people that, you know, um, do it for, I wouldn't say to be flashy, but it's part of it. Um, it's people are proud of their achievements and I think that is awesome. Um, but when you see it getting heavily milked on social media, you'll find it's probably someone who's paid business class airfare for, for a whole private jet um, that could get cancelled on them because it is an empty leg um, and they don't want you to know that. 
especially you, you definitely saw it with the e-commerce crypto guys, um, you know, selling courses, doing this, doing that. Um, they, they'd book empty legs and just shoot the hell out of it and then recycle over 12 months. So, um, you know, we, we just don't want people to see that and go, oh, God, everyone's flying private. How come I'm not? Um, you find a lot of our folk are self-made, extremely hardworking, uh, a lot of things going on for them, you know, multiple businesses being ran, but they don't really get their phone out in the jet. That's the saying, right? Like, you know, you're rich when you can fly private and not take photos of it. <laughs> and, 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 and that's, and, you know, I mean, you know, we, we have guys that take personal photos, but they don't flaunt it on social media. Um, yeah, it's, of- it's, it's a great experience, but they're doing it for a different reason. They're doing it because they can get from A to B extremely quickly when they ask for it, not when the airline's ready for them. I think it probably also stems back to where we started the conversation in terms of when you've got multiple things going on, if you've got a successful business, if you've got a family, if you're trying to, if you've got a team down in Melbourne and you live on the Gold Coast, as an example, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. you really do value the fact that you don't just be sat at the airport for two hours and then mm-hmm. they get, it gets kicked by half an hour, an hour, whatever. Yep. Um, and, yep. and, the, and the FAF, right? It is a massive FAF um, mm. travel. And I, I know we took our toddler to melbourne <laughs> i actually googled i was on early's website i was like I wonder what it would cost me to get a whole plane to just do this because it was so painful right yeah. um and look it's pricey but i think it, it it's certainly it's also not it's not like way out there if that makes sense you know when you you speak we, to we surprise a lot of people and, and, and that's but that's what we wanted to do we wanted to we wanted you and we're doing some work on our app at the moment to even further f- further this sort of um functionality is we want you to be able to see what the price is because half the game is oh contact us and we'll give you a quote no you should be able to punch it into an app and go oh okay so that's how much it would cost 80 percent of people will go mm, no nah, still expensive of course it's expensive um it's still it's still private aviation the jets aren't cheap to run and buy um, and maintain it's not as if someone's sitting in the middle making you know 80 percent of the margin um but i think for a lot of people they just weren't aware a lot of you know a few of our customers we talked to they just were like oh okay so yeah okay that's quite reasonable um they just didn't know and when they tried to find out oh what are your dates what what's your preference what's this what's that what's that what's that so we just keep it really narrow four passengers or less you're on this citation mustang beautiful jet extremely predictable pricing um at the moment you can go on our website and see some of the in the, the fixed prices that's what the price is um and then yeah soon we'll, we'll, we'll have that functionality where you can put in what you need and it will pop up this is what it is um and also revisit a split functionality where you can book half the jet and, and put out the other half to someone else i love that logan i think it in some ways it's like the epitome of like intelligent performance because you know as a business owner like especially if you are stuck in doing that trip as a, a Qantas or a virgin you are like frustrated <laughs> and then the big barrier to changing is because the lack of transparency and ease right and i think if you mm, just solve that mm. piece then um and and time is a whole different ball game when you frame it like that isn't it so yeah amazing can i um just want to touch on towards family now so mm-hmm. you you do these two like you know you're full time ceo um you're innovating your navigating covid how do you think about like how do you switch off maybe you don't like how do you kind of pull that and you're also working from home so and this is more of a selfish question luke because i really struggle with this personally in terms of like you know walking out of an office into the lounge room and 
you know, you're in family zone straight away. And that, that can be really hard to go from CEO um, and everything that entails to, you know, Luca's dad. It's, it's not easy, mate. So um, the reality is in my business, it, you know, people expect responses quickly um, because a lot of our competitors will wait until tomorrow before they answer you. If you ping me at WhatsApp at 8 p.m., you'll get a response. Um, and we've won a lot of business doing that because people want to know, hey, I, I need a jet tomorrow or what? no good waiting till tomorrow to, to fit, you know, get back to them. So um, it's extremely hard for me to switch off. I, I would class my working day from 7 a.m. to about 7 or 8 p.m., now, that doesn't mean I am working at a computer for that period of time. What I did change probably when I went full-time, because when, when I was in the fire brigade, I'd do my day shift, come home, work. I do, you know, work during the day, go do night shift. Um, you can't do that for a long time. It's, it, was, it was so taxing. What I started doing is basically allocating time. So, my, yeah, so I schedule my day from 7 till about 5 or 7 p.m., um, and do things that I would normally do outside of the nine to five within it as well. So normally around lunchtime, it's quiet. So I would book in gym time at 12. Um, I would allocate pre, because both of like, I've got a nine-year-old and a, and a, and a four and a half-year-old, so preppy. Um, they're both at school now. So I'll, I'll allocate time. You know, it sounds a bit pretentious, but allocate family time at this block. I'll help them with homework at this block. Um, and then basically at dinner time until they go to bed, I'm with them as well. So it's hard to switch off. But I think if you start, you know, I wouldn't encourage having a seven till seven work day. It's just the nature of the business I'm in. But <laughs> I think just being being smarter about how I think I I did a my day looks very different to what it did three years ago. Um, I feel like I am doing less, but far more intelligent with the work that I'm doing. So it's, I don't want to say work smarter, not harder, um, because it's too cliche, but I think I, I changed up a lot of how I approach things. Um, and, and it probably also comes down to what, it, what is our vision, what are our KPIs? Um, because if you don't have that, and, you know, and, and then every task that comes up that you need to do, aside from customer service, obviously, and, and taking bookings and, and processing and managing that, how does this impact the KPI or the vision? If it doesn't, don't do it. I was doing a lot of shit three years ago that was just not what not it was just a total waste of time um at the time it felt like the right thing to do yeah I can today when yeah when, when things come up it's like okay these are the kpis we've got does it impact any of them no don't do it um mm. I, i'll get you know hey do you want to have a coffee i just want to chat to you about some things it's like look respectfully can you message me with what you want to talk about if it impacts those three kpis yeah. or someone that needs help or you know it, it's sort of like screening your time. Like I, I should be in Sydney on Tuesday and I'm already trying to find reasons not to, because I have too much else to do. Makes so sense. it's sort of like looking at the Sydney trip going, does it impact any of my KPIs? Probably not. I'm not going. Um, even though I can catch one of my jets down, <laughs> which is always a nice perk, but yeah, yeah it, it, I, I made, I honestly think it's about um, obviously. Yeah. I, I probably spent 20 minutes a day Netflixing and chill because I can't sit still. Um, I'd rather be doing something else. So, and, and then sort of uh, scheduling in hobby time. So gym, um, going for walks, um, running errands. Like I do, I do stuff at the weirdest times because that's just my day. And for some <laughs> weird reason, doing it that way has been a profound, I feel like I've never been more, give, had more time available to the kids. 
Um, whereas in the fire brigade, you know, I was, I was gone a lot, but then home a lot um, on, on days off and, and during annual leave. So it feels like for a guy that's sort of, yes, full-time on, on one job and now has some, you know, side interests again, helping um, friends of mine with their businesses. It's sort of, um, I don't know, it feels like that I'm working less. But as I said, you know, it's been the culmination of those seven years that, that enables me to sit back and just go, okay, I need to focus more on this or, you know, this doesn't impact my KPI vision. I'm not doing it. It's a waste of time. Um, whether that works in the long term, we'll find out. But that's the best way in this, you know, you only have, kids only have their childhood once, right? You don't want to, you see, you read too many stories where very successful people, uh, that's the only thing I regret, I wish I had more time with my kids. And it's like, well, it's always yeah. great to be successful and, and look in retrospect. Um, I'd rather try and balance that now. Um, you know, I might not be striving to that success as fast as I could be, but I'm also, my kids can sit back and when, when I'm gone, say, geez, he gave us a lot of time. Like he was still around. He wasn't pushing us off all the time. He wasn't ignoring us. Um, it's tricky. It's hard. But for me, that is what, that is what has worked. I, I, I block out a, a, a 12 hour, you know, 7am to 7pm period. And again, I'm not working the whole time, but that's my day. Um, I love that. I love that. I think it's, um, I think it's also that changing definition of success, right? It used to be so arbitrary. It used to, it's usually success is usually synonymous with the amount of money in your bank account or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. That's the often mm -hmm. how the word success is used. But I think for actually for families and for men, it, it does seem to be changing because just one or the other doesn't actually seem to be that rewarding. And there is this kind of, and then you throw in work from home where kids are actually all of a sudden you're actually accessible, which is mm -hmm. a massive gift, but also a massive challenge. So you know, it can be a hindrance as well. Yeah, absolutely. Correct. And it can be really distracting and uh, I certainly get parent guilt as it, you know, it shows up quite mm -hmm. regularly in that, in that domain. Right. So um, no, I think it's, I love that. I, I love the strictness around the KPIs and I, I love evaluating business decisions or even time allocation around that street, that street commitment. So, um, yeah. awesome. Well, Luke, where I want to finish the conversation, you've got the F1 coming up. I think it's in early April. And so yeah. how are you, how's early? It sounds like that would be a kind of a key draw for a lot of your clients or uh, I'd imagine or maybe even people coming into internationally. Is it a boom time for um, you or? No, not really. So, I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, we were doing these sort of buy the seat options where you'd, you know, get a private jet to Melbourne, get a helicopter to Paddock Club, stay at Crown, do all that kind of stuff. Um, the last few years, we've a lot of our guys haven't been going. Again, our, our consumer base has shifted somewhat. Um, last year, especially, I spoke to a few, you know, other brokers and operators, and they weren't that busy. Um, I think because... I mean, this is what this is one of the problems we solve, right? If you're wanting to fly down Thursday to start looking at, you know, get get into Melbourne, get settled, and then start attending from practice one um, through to the end of the race Sunday night, probably party Sunday night, go home Monday. So Thursday to Monday, no one parks a jet, which means that the eight seat jet out of Sydney to Melbourne, right? They're going to sting you close to $40,000 for that round trip. So who's going to pay 40 grand for a two hour round, like a, a one hour trip each way? Um, so we fixed that problem, you know, by doing the fixed one-way pricing. Um, but I think a lot of people have just elected for commercial, especially last year. We, we didn't see much of it at all. Um, we, we do have flights around those week that, that F1 weekend, but not related to F1, which is really interesting. So I, 
it's been really interesting predicting de- demand. Um, and yeah, F1, spring racing, you sort of you hang your hat on that. But for some reason, in the last few years, we haven't seen it as much. Um, where then come winter, we'll be going to Cooma every weekend. Um, come winter, we'll be flying people, you know, the Gold Coast is probably our biggest, um, sorry, Noosa to Byron Bay is our biggest cu- customer base, um, flying all of, all of them up to Hamilton Island in, in the winter. So, and then you'll go, okay, you know, this particular period is normally quiet in aviation and we are breaking records. It's just, it's it's been extremely hard to predict demand. Yeah, right. I don't know if that's because the lockdowns lifted. A lot of guys went to Europe. So their normal travel cycles were out of kilter. Um, it's been really hard to, to, to put my finger on. Um, I mean, we're, we're available. As I said, we've got jets booked around those dates anyway, but it's not really for Formula One. So um, look, I'm looking forward to, like, I'm a, I'm a, well, Danny Rick fan, but um, now that he's gone, I've been trying to figure out what team to go for. And I sort of like Aston Martin. Um, I like the green. I like, you know, it's just something different. So, and McLaren's got an orange tractor this year. So I'm quite happy to sort of back them. And so I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, we, weirdly enough for us, um, we'll just be steady. Um, we've, got flight, we've got flights around it, but if, and if we get flights to and from, we generally get the odd one picked up last minute when the airlines get can- uh, start cancelling. But um, yeah, it's just it's just operations normal for us. When it's busy, we 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 step up, and when it's quiet, we we just be ready. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think it's um, it certainly sounds like Ellie's whole approach is about not actually what you think private aviation is actually about, and uh, it's certainly shifted a lot of my preconceptions around you know that this is superfluous, pointless. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, and, and it's it's. It's shown me so much um, and and demolished some of my hypothesis. Uh, yeah. like it's <laughs> yeah. demolished some of my preconceived thoughts on demand, on yep. who our customer is. Um, yeah, uh, we've got a business strategist. He's an absolute gun. You know, he starts to, he gets me, because when you're in the weeds, you don't see it, but then he gets you to pull back and go, okay, show me this, tableize mm. this for me, show me this. And, and we looked at it and you're going, okay, predominantly business travel, I think. 15% of our flights are business travel. So you go, what? You know, you don't expect that. Um, so much leisure travel. Um, we, we've got these three personas. It'll probably be, you know, a, a, this kind of spread amongst them all. And then you realize you were totally wrong about that as well. So um, I've given up on having those preconceived ideas. We just make sure our product is sound and, and we make it as simple as possible. Like this year for us, it's just simplicity. No bells and whistles, no fancy marketing talk. It's just how can we break, make this simpler? Can we reduce the friction? Can we make it simpler? Um, can we make pricing simpler, process simpler, understanding the product simpler? Um, and if we can do that, I think we'll, we'll, we'll take the next step again. Awesome. Luke, I think it's been a great way to finish this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.